I am your host, Claudia Shambaugh, welcoming you to September 23, 2014 edition. This is the edition of Ask a Leader. Hats off and kudos to those who uh, turned out at any of the climate change rallies around the world. I was not amused to see the LA Times bury the story on page six yesterday and decide to lead instead above the fold with a story about the dearth of comedies on television. I mean, really. So starting today, um, the UN Secretary General's Climate Summit convenes. Let's watch for signs of leadership on the inside as well as the outside. And the outside, that's leadership you all can weigh in with, with all of your elected representatives to step up to this climate change policymaking. And speaking of the UN now, to today's guests, Vahe Mesropian, third year UCI law school student, will talk as the lead drafter of a recently released UCI law clinic report to the UN. The clinic has investigated U.S. Customs and Border Protection's excessive force, as well as accountability and transparency issues. Then, during the second portion of the show, Orange County Chapter Chair of the Brady Campaign for the Prevention of Gun Violence, Charles Bleck, will cover firearms legislation that awaits Governor Brown's signature, the level of UCI student activism around firearms, and Orange County Sheriff Hutchins' concealed weapons processing like lightning, like speed. Kind of a bit of a lot to chew on, but we'll try to get it all done in the next hour. We'll be right back. Thank you, everybody, for staying with me. Welcome back to Ask a Leader. My first guest today is Vahe Ms. Ropian, the lead drafter of a recently submitted report entitled United States Customs and Border Protection Engages in Excessive Force, for which there is no accountability. Of Armenian descent, Vahe spent his youngest years in Russia. When he was eight, he moved with his family to the U.S., where he attended schools in San Fernando Valley. He completed his B.A. in political science at UCI and is now enrolled in his third and final year at UCI's law school. He was previously a technical investigator for Baxter International, was a law clerk for the Orange County District Attorney's Office, and is currently a legal intern at the Federal Trade Commission at the Los Angeles office, where he now calls in this interview. Welcome to the show, Vahe Mesropian. Well, thank you for having me. It's good to have you. And as your title and formal introduction make plain, you've submitted the report to the UN's Universal Periodic Review of the USA. This is a a unique process. Our audience uh, will be interested in knowing that the Cyprus and Sudanese UN delegations, among others, sought this investigation as it pertains to the alleged brutality sustained by Latin American and African Americans. Now, are you, though, not actually directing your analysis and recommendations to Homeland Security, Department of Justice, and whom else? Right. Well, just to clarify, Homeland Security is... CBP's parent organization, and so has authority over the agency. And similarly, uh, the Department of Justice has authority to conduct criminal investigations of incidents involving uh, CBP officers. And so essentially, UCI's International Justice Clinic is using the Universal Periodic Review to deliver its analysis and recommendations to the CBP, Homeland Security, 
the federal government as a whole, and just generally to erase public awareness of the issues. And the folks, the- yes, I just want to say one thing, Vi. So every time CBP, that's the the um, commission, the, oh, I keep wanting to put that in there. Um, it's the Customs and Border Protection. Every time you hear the shorthand, folks, it's Customs and Border Protection, a federal uh, agency. Okay, back to that, your, your answer, Vahe. Yeah, so essentially the way the periodic review works, it's, it's a process in which um, that reviews the implementation of human rights laws by governments that surround the Human Rights Council, and the U.S. being one of them, who's up for review next year. And part of the investigation process is the council accepts shadow reports, like the ones that we submitted, from non-government organizations, um, which would outline evidence of wrongdoing and human rights violations. And after the council reviews all the evidence presented to them, they will formally publish concluding observations and recommendations. And so although we're submitting these recommendations to the Human Rights Council, when the review is completed, the Human Rights Council will then deliver these conclusions to the federal government. I, I know I hadn't um, uh, asked in prior in preparation here, but is this um, an unusual route to get an, an American governmental agency uh, on board with um, a, a, a crisis management issue? Well, not really. I mean, essentially, this is how it's done, okay. uh, which was new to me. This is what something I learned through the clinic. Um, reaching out to an agency alone by a law school clinic isn't going to be as effective as opposed to a formal um, recommendation by an established uh, agency or established organization like the Human Rights Council. So you really get their attention. Exactly. Them, I mean, the collective them, the collective federal them. Okay, well, uh, prior uh, to and along with your work is the work of the Police Executive Research Forum. Uh, was this the seed of your investigations? And tell us who they are. Well, the Police Executive Research Forum, they're a nonprofit police research and policy organization that helps improve the delivery of public services. And so the result of their report, uh, well, in 2013, the CBP had commissioned the research forum to review its use, use of force policy and use of force incidents um, and recommend uh, some changes uh, in response to uh, public scrutiny. So the research forum had the opportunity to review 67 specific cases of deadly force incidents and also analyzed the CBP's use of force policy. So later that year, this, the police forum submitted their recommendations to the CBP, but the CBP did not make this report public for over 15 months. And when it did, and when the report was made public, it was immediately apparent why CBP wanted to keep the findings secret. Um, the police executive research forum made some very damning conclusions. In particular, it found that Officers were intentionally standing in front of moving vehicles as a pretext to opening fire. Um, second, they found that officers did not avoid rock doors in situations where they'd be able to do so, and so open fire again. Um, third, they found that um, agents in many cases resorted to deadly force where non-lethal options were available and more appropriate. And a lot of the time, officers used deadly force out of frustration rather than necessity. And also, they've specifically found that the CBP agency as generally lacks diligence in its investigation 
of use of deadly force. And so these conclusions were very helpful to us, but this was not really our entire seed. We also had help from various other non-government organizations. The ACLU helped us out a lot. Uh-huh. Um, the, we looked at investigative reports conducted by uh, news out- media outlets, such as the Arizona Republic, NPR, um, and also the Department of Homeland Security's Office of Inspector General conducted its own investigation um, of CBP and found very similar results and particularly found that despite the recommendations suggested by the Police Executive Research Forum, CBP did not take any action. And so it was just a combination of all these reports and uh, the analysis of those reports in which our report is based on. Fahey, this begs the question, were there any whistleblowers within the ranks of the Customs and Border Protection? We haven't seen much, but very recently, um, last month, I want to say, um, former CBP head of internal affairs... Yeah, we'll get to him. Go ahead, but you get to him now. Okay. <laughs> Go ahead. Okay, sure. Yeah, I mean, he was essentially the whistleblower. Most of the, uh, most of the incidents come from victims reporting to um, news outlets or the ACLU in hopes of litigation. But in terms of the CBP's head of internal affairs, he was removed from office in June. And in August, he came out and publicly stated that the uh, CBP sees itself as a, above reproach and constant constraints and shield its agents' misconduct. Um, Border Patrol has a culture of violence and secrecy. And that was James Tomchek. And the name is important because he is very available in these. Uh, he's very forthcoming now, unlike how he was in his management position. So searching for his name, James Tomchek, T-O-M-S-H-E-C-K, there's week to week sorts of updates on what's going on with the Customs Border Protection. So it's um, go ahead. So go ahead what you were saying that he was removed last June. And now, as I say, he's very forthcoming and he's he's sending out a lot of co- uh, quotable content. Absolutely. And the fact that uh, a former high-ranking official is making these claims is refreshing, and even more so since he was head of internal affairs who's responsible for making sure there's diligent investigations. Um, and so, it's, I mean, it's, ref- it's refreshing to hear him come out and speak the way he does. Refreshing 28 casualties later. Right. <laughs> I mean, that's the, the number. Now, for those of you who've just joined us, my guest is Vahe Mesropian, third-year UCI law student and legal intern at the Federal Trade Commission here on Ask a Leader at KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. I can't say it's streaming on the web at KUCI.org and detention centers around the country because telecommunications connections are limited, if non-existent, in those locations. So um, I let's go back to uh, the report as uh, recently, uh, well, we've talked about what James Tomchek is talking about, um, that I've noticed Vahe, that the characterization, what you've talked about, and you can talk about even more detail, the characterization of the Customs and Border Protection as a culture, it seems to me it's hardly distinguishable from the vigilante culture of the private soldiers of fortune amassed along the border. This is really troubling. What is your impression of James Tomchek's replacement uh, from the FBI? What do you make of the 
current issue, and he's talking about, um, we're going to get ahead of ourselves, uh, this change before we talk about all your recommendations, but um, what do you think of the the uh, Tom Chep replacement? I mean, it's been a very short amount of time, so it's I, I would say it's too early to tell. Um, but, I mean, the fact that the commissioner has removed the head of internal affairs and replaced them, it's kind of, a, the implication is that they're moving towards more transparency and more um, accountability. And when when he was replaced during his, uh, the FBI official said that he was not aware that the most recent uh, reprimand for of a CBP official for killing an individual was back in 2004. So it seems as though like it, it, there's the promise of change, but since it's so recent, I would say we just have, kind of have to wait and see. So the lack of transparency and all is, I mean, there were a lot of records that were, uh, I don't know, how, how would you as a, a legal student, you were privy to some of the records. I mean, there are a lot of interviews you were not being able to conduct. You want to ask them how they operated and that kind of thing, and they would not give you an interview. Um, but how how hard is it for them to just tinker with all the records so nobody has a clue what actually happened in the ground? Well, absolutely. Even when the uh, the Department of Homeland Security report was released, a lot of the damning conclusions were completely redacted. Um, and so even when the specific incidents occur, there's no disclosure of the details. Even in the rare occurrences where investigations are being conducted, um, all, all we get to know is whether or not this agent is being found guilty or I'm sorry, if he's acting unlawfully or not unlawfully. Uh, we don't get any details of the investigation, what occurred, what didn't occur. Um, as one example, in 2012, um, a Mexican teenager was shot on the Mexican side of the border by one or more Border Patrol agents. And then an autopsy revealed that the teen was shot 10 times in the back and the head. And despite the questionable um, circumstances, there was no investigation. Uh, the agent's name was not released, uh, nor were the details of the incident. Um, and in July of this year, the teen's family filed a lawsuit, and only then an investigation commenced. But even then, it wasn't the CBP that was conducting the investigation. It was the U.S. Attorney's Office. So they filed it um, not in Mexico. Somehow the, the family on the Mexican side of the border filed it with the our federal government. Is that how that worked? Well, they did it with the help of the ACLU. So it's more of um, it's essentially yeah, a lawsuit against the United States. And with the help of ACLU. Wow. And so, this, the, what is, Vahe, the status of that case of that teenager shot and killed uh, in 2012? I mean, the case is still pending. It's very newly filed. It was filed earlier this year. July, you said, uh, right? Yeah, in July of this year. So, um, it's still it's still pending. All right. Well, I and I don't know that we're getting very much coverage. I mean, there's coverage now where uh, the the Tom Check's replacement has now uh, he's. Putting on, it's a trial basis of, of fixing uh, cameras, putting body cameras on them. But um, so I don't know. Let's let that be a, a seg into what particular. There's some general recommendations. I want you to get as specific as you can about uh, procedure, protocol, and all that you recommended in your report, Vahe. Well, essentially, another one of the changes you mentioned that uh, they're tinkering with putting on body cameras, which is refreshing to hear. But again, you know, it's just a promise. Uh, there's no delivery. And similarly, um, the CBP is now the sole 
agency that will be conducting investigations. Whereas previously, uh, CBP was only responsible for investigating for administrative purposes. And the local police departments and the Department of Justice were authorized to make do the criminal, criminal investigations. And now it's been changed so that CBP will now be conducting the criminal investigations as well. And though this seems like it will help out, in my opinion, mm. I think it's troubling yeah. because of the fact that CBP is very secretive, has this culture of helping one another out, um, has a culture of violence. And so putting that responsibility with the CBP, in my opinion, is not the way to go. What I would recommend and the clinic recommends essentially is that a third-party organization, an ex- external uh, organization or agency, conduct these reviews, is diligent in the reviews, investigates each single incident, uh, makes the details of the investigation public. And so by making the details of the investigation public, uh, there will be some sort of accountability for investigations that aren't very diligent. Fahey, does that are you talking about retroactively or uh, going back to those 20 other 28 plus cases or do you mean from now on that would be ideal um, there are hundreds of instances that haven't gone um, investigated in fact um, in May 2014 there was a report which stated that there were about 800 complaints in a three-year period of wow. alleged CBP um, use of excessive force and of those 800, only 13 led to disciplinary action. And 42% of the 800 complaints didn't have any decision at all. So there is this trend of having a complaint and having it go unanswered. Um, so ideally, we would like, it would be ideal for this to apply retroactively, but if it, uh, if it doesn't and this change occurs on its own, that's still some sort of progress. Well, that's real troubling if it's only the customs... Border protection that would be overseeing this. I'm, I don't. Uh, I, now, did that change occur before or after your report was issued? This uh, this was last week. Oh, so last and, week, uh, yeah. So, so on Thursday, and we submitted this report. Um, I want to say two weeks ago. So it was immediately after we submitted our report. So there's a change made, but it's maybe a step backward. I mean, a clear. I think clearly a step backwards. Isn't that kind of send uh, all of you uh, working on that report a bit of a panic? I mean, that's my personal opinion as well. And even then, even if it wasn't stepped back, just a policy change on its own isn't enough. You know, uh, if policy change can lead nowhere, you know, the CBP culture might stay the same. Um, I guess we just kind of have to wait and see uh, and see what happens. But although I would like to mention, though, yes. there has been a lot of change or a lot of um, a lot of efforts on the CBP's part to implement some sort of change whether it's good or bad, you know, in my opinion, is that it's refreshing to see that because in the prior years there has been essentially no response. Um, The CPP has not done anything, and I want to say in the past year or so we've been seeing a lot of of media attention and the CPP actually attempting to make some sort of change. So the movement is coming from the... the 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 fourth state the fourth estate with uh, getting 
uh, with that kind of uh, oversight. And we're trying to do our part, Vahe and I, now to raise people's awareness. I'm, from time to time, I know it's a it's a sort of a lurid, um, breaking story about somebody being shot through the you know the ear, and they're but they're all shot from behind. I mean, all those most of those cases is the impression I got from your report and from the uh, the mainstream media coverage of this. So um, we're we're all in on this uh, uh, awareness raising when we're talking about this with Vahe Misropian, third year UCI law student uh, uh, today to, about this. Well, um, so the Freedom of Information Act, even for a while, that wasn't even enough. So uh, that's that's uh, it was difficult to use that device as getting um, through with which was startlingly low incidence of meaningful inquiry, as you talked about in your report. So um, that's. That's what one of the devices you've used is it, and so it's perhaps opening up more and more now. With the you're talking about not more trans, well maybe just more transparency, but not different implementation yet. Right. Well, the commissioner Jill Kolakowski, he was appointed in March, right. and so I don't want to. I don't know if a lot of the changes due to new leadership, which it could be, but there is. Uh, he did make the promise in his inauguration, and he said that. Um, you know, prior, his priority is going to be addressing these issues that have been haunting the CBP for years. Um, and, you know, it's, he is making some sort of changes. Um, and whether or not they're good, it's just we're going to have to wait and see. It remains to be seen. Um, but I do see a, a trend of the CBP taking steps towards the right direction. Okay. Well, that's... Um that's a bit reassuring. And I, when we talk about this, I mean, while all of this is going on, I just feel like we have to tilt our direction to the multitude of other transgressions that are occurring that should still concern us, the due process uh, in general and the, the remote location of the detention facilities. They're isolating detainees from familial or legal help, then the conditions under which unattended minors are handled, the manner in which delicate topics like sexual abuse, domestic sexual abuse are handled within earshot of the children. A whole cadre of volunteer attorneys are taking up some of those charges, but um, is is that something that interests you, or you're you're going to keep specializing on what the Customs uh, Border Protection is working at? Well, like I just said, the problem isn't just new excessive force. There's a whole array of problems with the CBP's conduct. And our report only focuses on the excessive force and the lack of accountability. I mean, had we tried including all that, it would just be an endless report. Right. But it is definitely an issue that everybody should be paying attention to. Um, it seems as though all these changes our response to public scrutiny and uh, media coverage. You know, if it goes silent, nobody's talking about it, there's no need for, or there's no urgency for the CDB to change. So it's very important that all these issues are made aware and, and in the public eye. Well, hey, are you getting any congressional uh, requests, any uh, congressional attention? You want to uh, give a, not a shout out, but just uh, acknowledge uh, them getting involved in reversing this um, Role uh, this this uh, the momentum of what's happened and in, in, in these transgressions with the Customs Border Protection. Well, like I said, um, the commissioner's new the new commissioner it seems like he is trying to take this seriously, and I hope he continues to do so. Um, and just you know, there's a wide array of non-government organizations that are constantly um, discussing this issue and putting it in the public, and I think that's the way that change is going to happen. Not with, not with any kind of congressional sort of uh, visibility in weighing in on this? Um, honestly, I would 
that's a little bit. Um, I'm not really sure how to. Okay, well that may be in the, right. that may be in the works. That's but you're you're making it available to all of them. They're, the offices are able to see that, so they know how to win. They're obviously they're they're mighty overstimulated with the crises that are uh, uh, springing all over the place. But uh, this this is a it's an international issue because of the uh, that it's a it involves two countries that. Um, where these transgressions are occurring. Well, Vahe, I've got to wrap it up with the question here, the final. Where does this report take you? Well, honestly, I'm just honored to have been part of such a large-scale project. Um, going into it, I didn't, expect, I didn't expect it to be as large as it has been, nor as important as it has been. Um, it's, it's made me much more aware of the reality that human rights violations occur here in America. Um, and I'm grateful to have had this opportunity um, I've learned a great deal about advocating for a group of people I've never met before, and I look forward to doing so again in the future. Well, great. Well, I want to thank you. That's all the time we have, Vahe. Thanks for being on the show. Thank you so much for having me. And that's Vahe Mesropian, law school student at UCI, who will be finishing up at the end of this academic year, that is in the spring of 2015. Stay tuned. We'll be right back after a short break with Charles Bleck, the founding president of the California chapters, the Brady campaign, and the, the chair of the Orange County chapter. Thank you, everybody, for staying tuned. Welcome back to Ask a Leader. My next guest is uh, returns now for possibly, I think it's the third time uh, uh, on Ask a Leader. It's Charlie Beck, Charles Beck to be more formal here at the beginning, president of the California chapters of the Brady Campaign to Prevent Gun Violence. Who he currently serves as president of the Orange County chapter. He's been honored for his work by Loyola Law School, Law Center to Prevent Gun Violence, Brady Center to Prevent Gun Violence, Violence Prevention Coalition of Orange County, and his article, Our Second Amendment, was published by the American Bar Association. Some of you may have also heard Charlie uh, two Thursdays ago on Real People of Orange County, broadcast Thursdays from 4 to 5. Every time I interview, every interview that I do with Charlie and sometimes with his activist, co-activist wife, Mary Lee, I honor the loss of their son, Matthew, who was killed by a Saturday night special at a burglary gone very bad in New York City in 1995. Many new developments and concerns bring Charlie back, so it's my pleasure to have him on. Welcome back to Ask a Leader, my good man. Well, thank you very much, Claudia. It's always an honor to be on your show. The honor is mine, Charlie Black. Well, let's first press on to the immediate issues that are the legislative bills sitting on Governor Brown's desk awaiting his signature. We'll start with AB 10, let's see, it's 1014, uh, sponsored that's by Mr. Skinner. That's a great place to start, Claudia, because that's probably one of the most significant policy and life-changing bills we've had in a substantial length of time. Um, do you mind if I kind of walk your uh, listeners through it? Please, I would. that's why you're here. Okay. Well, first of all, who may report? And we're talking about families and law enforcement. And when we think about this bill, think about the tragedy that happened at Isla Vista or in Orange County, the tragedy that happened in Seal Beach with the Salon 8. 
So, first of all, the folks who can report are family members and law enforcement. And quite frankly, there are penalties in force if they make a false report. So we want to go out of our way to make sure that what's happening is factual. What are they doing? Well, we want to accomplish the temporary restricting of the ability of individuals who pose a significant risk of personal injury to themselves and to others to possess firearms. And the reason that's important, Claudia, is the difficulty with the Isla Vista issue was that even though that young man had been in treatment, he had not reached the high level of being able to be adjudicated as mentally incompetent. Therefore, he had the legal right to possess guns. We know that people can temporarily be in crisis where they don't think very clearly. And when in crisis, we want to temporarily restrict their ability to get to a firearm, and that's what this bill would create. Uh, The background is there for this bill to be successful because Connecticut and Indiana have, in fact, enacted similar laws, and they have saved lives for this. And what this law does is it, Well, what it will do when we call the governor and we encourage him to um, support this particular bill and sign it, because it had overwhelming support of, unfortunately, just the Democrats and a few independents in our state legislature. We we need to really educate our Orange County Republicans, Claudia, but that's for another day. Well, no, that's ongoing. That's not for another day. It's okay, well, every day. that's ongoing. That's great, because the election is coming up, and right. hopefully uh, when you have a town hall meeting with uh, your folks who are going to have uh, an opportunity to explain their positions, they can bring up the part that, 1040, AB 1014 was there to prevent an Isla Vista, and why did they not support that bill? But the important part today is our governor, and his telephone number is 1-916-945-9691, and I'll repeat that throughout your show. Now, what this will do is this bill also takes into consideration due process because we are asking that an individual be temporarily restrained from possessing firearms. So it establishes a process for obtaining a gun violence restraining order. You have to go through the court system, and it's a temporary limit, initially up to 21 days. So we have gone through and we have tried, and we believe we've been successful in, first of all, addressing the problem of taking this gun out of the possession of someone who might do something irrational at that time. And we have also protected their constitutional rights through due process. And most importantly, we're protecting himself or herself and the people that he or she may do harm to others. Right. And and as that particular age group, there's that, um, that the the lack of judgment, the sort of immature judgment of that there, there's no way but, uh, out of this kind of uh, mental um, issue crisis that, um, as you say, it's a matter that they were a danger to themselves. This guy could have survived it all with the proper kind of interventions in place, uh, no, no falling through the cracks, and he could have turned it around eventually. I mean, that's, you know, we that, always... We always focus on, unfortunately, well, the, the, the mass shootings grab us, but another reason we need this bill is because of teen and teen suicide. There right. is a, uh, something called a glow minute when I sit on panels with various physicians, and they tell me that when a person attempts a suicide with uh, slashing a wrist or taking pills, they understand what a really stupid thing they've done, and they want to live. So there's a 911 call, and there's the uh, 
life-saving techniques are significant, and there's um, a way that they do counseling, and they go on to very productive lives. When there is a loaded, unlocked gun available to that individual, and that is their choice to attempt, Claudia, they're going to be 97% successful, and there will be no 911 call, and the family and the friends will be extremely confused, extremely angry, and that person will be very dead. So what we want to do is we're in this to prevent, and this bill is so significant, and it was so applied in so many different ways that we really need to tell our governor, who unfortunately has been at best, a wild card on our gun bills. Some he signs and some he doesn't, and some of his rationales for veto messages, quite frankly, don't make sense to me. But this is so overwhelmingly important and significant that uh, we really, your listeners, especially at UCI, when we had that vigil. We'll talk there. about the vigil. We'll talk about that and break it down here. Um, we're going to stay with the, uh, keep that thought, and we're going to go on to the next legislation. Okay. It's Is it the 505? I've got it. Yes, it's uh, Senator Hannah Beth Jackson. We worked, she is wonderful. She's a state senator from the Santa Barbara area, which was her home turf up there now. Plus, we worked with her when she was an assembly member, and she not only is fantastic on our gun bills, but she is really a strong advocate for women's rights. So all the way around, She's a very dynamic personality. And she has a bill that would require law enforcement agencies to develop policies and protocols when they are conducting checks on welfare and well-being of individuals to check the database with the Department of Justice and determine if that person is a registered owner of a firearm. If the police and, and the Department of Justice has this available, that's what's so uh, galling in this particular situation. Yes. But I'm sure if the police had been aware of the fact that the shooter in Isla Vista had purchased three, legally purchased three separate handguns in the recent past, that that would have piqued their interest to further their investigation. And that's what we want. We want to protect ourselves. We want to protect the individual who possesses the gun at that time. We want to get them through this crisis moment. Are uh, the the perpetrator's parents, are they um, also working on that, on both of these pieces of legislation? We have, and, and fortunately, uh, we have a large coalition that is in support of this particular, these particular bills. But yes, they're very significantly in, char- in, in favor of, and fortunately, Claudia, we have 25 Brady chapters throughout the state of California and many other activist groups. Even here in Orange County, we have the uh, Violence Prevention Coalition of Orange County. We have Women Four. We have a number of, yes. quite frankly, the Democratic clubs. One of the most active ones is there. I still call it Leisure World, even though it's Laguna Woods Village now. Right. And they are all extremely active in support of this bill. And uh, the physicians have come forward in support of this bill. So we have a broad base of support for this bill, and it just I mean, it just makes so much common sense that uh, I defy anybody to come up with a reason to oppose it. All right. Well, um, I, you're right. I, I, I've noticed that in the past. It's very difficult to to plot the logic with Governor Brown's um, veto messages and uh, signed uh, legislation. So uh, it's incumbent of listeners either to call. One more time. I just uh, wanted to write one nine one six nine four five. Nine six nine one, and of course I'll put that in the podcast summary when I upload it the show today. And there's always a way. You just 
on your search engine, go to the the governor of California's uh, office on the web, and you'll be able to send a, a lovely penned email with the, all the prompts that Charlie Black provides. And for those of you who've just joined us, my guest is the one and only Charles Black, chairperson of the Orange County uh, chapter of the Brady Campaign for the Prevention of Gun Violence here on Ask a Leader at 88.9 FM in Irvine, streaming all over the web, on the world, on the web at KUCI.org. Well, you've um, mentioned the the vigil at UCI that was uh, sort of charted to be in solidarity with the Isla, victim, uh, the Isla Vista victims, uh, affiliated uh, friends uh, and all. And so... There was a, an opportunity that you mentioned to me that you saw just there was an, another shoe needed to drop in that. So let's talk about what was going on with that rally. Well, first that vigil, of all, I and commend what, the students at UCI for coming out. They had a tremendous turnout. Mary Lee and I were there, and uh, they just had a fantastic turnout. Uh, Claudia, you have to understand that um, when I was in college, that was back in the 60s, and that was uh, under the Vietnam issue, and there was a lot of activism, and there was a lot of speaking out, and and really we wanted to do things. We wanted to be involved. Um, What disappointed me about this vigil was that when we were talking to the organizers, they stressed the fact that, all we're going to do is, quote, show solidarity, and showing solidarity in their mind was not talking about how to prevent this from happening at UCI. It was not talking about what we can do to look to the future. It was simply, um, uh, you know, I, I'm not real sure what their definition of solidarity was, but let's not be controversial. Let's not speak out. Uh, I guess it was, we have to hope, but for the grace of God, that not be me. Um, it was very disappointing until right near the end oh. when a um, black administrator took the microphone and basically challenged the crowd to say, this is where we're at, this is where we need to be going, and I appreciate his words, but there was such an opportunity at that particular vigil with that turnout to say to these folks, this doesn't need to happen, it doesn't need to be repeated, and God forbid that it ever visit our campus. And that's why I really appreciate the opportunity to be on your station today, because I think this really needs to come home to both the faculty and the listeners and the students near and about your, your range at the UCI, because we have UCI, we have various uh, uh, various. Uh, educational institutions, and there's no reason, unfortunately, why that may not happen at at our school and in our communities and in our county. And we need to step forward and we need to take these preventive actions for the security of all of us. And it was so important and such a great message that could have happened at that vigil, and I was really disappointed in the leadership that they missed that opportunity. Well, with the leadership that was there, that must have been Vice Chancellor Tom Parham. Does that sound... like the guy that was there, uh, Mr. Parham, and I can make sure that he gets an, uh, a a link to this podcast today, and so we can uh, sort of nudge nudge now, his office to uh, set more leadership ahead. I would certainly appreciate that. What and what's really significant is that I really appreciate our federal senators too. Um, uh, senators Boxer Senator and Feinstein. Senator Diane Feinstein in August 26th was kind enough and. 
involved enough to write to our governor and at that time to Daryl Steinberg and Tony Atkins, who were the Senate pro tem and Speaker of the Assembly. Mm -hmm. And it was dear Governor Brown, President Steinberg, and Speaker Atkins. And what she said is, I write to respectfully urge you to sign AB 1014 into law. And then she went through all of the various points of why it was so important. And these changes, in her closing, was these changes ensure that no person will be denied a firearm unless he clearly poses a danger and there is no other way to eliminate that risk. So she closes her letter to those three by urging them to enact AB 1014 into law to prevent those who present a threat to others and themselves from obtaining or keeping a firearm. And I think that's so significant that with all of the things that are going on in Washington, D.C., and nationally, that she would take the time and make the effort to write to these leaders and strongly support AB 1014. Well, I think she sees herself as the the, uh, poster public official uh, with the high-profile city of uh, California, the city of or the county of San Francisco commission when uh, she personally was drawn into the Harvey Milk assassination. So she learned the hard way. So yes, she knows indeed, she's got Claudia. a role. She has a role when these opportunities, these catastrophes come up. And I, I'm, I'm, I just want to parse one thing. When I hear uh, references to shootings and all, and they're called tragedies, I want us to change our language, and we refer to them as a catastrophe. There's, it, it fits the p- picture that there's a redemptive piece to a tragedy, and there is no redeeming uh, piece to a, a, a mass killing. So I just, it's a, it's a little uh, pet item of mine is to, uh, ramp oh, I up think the you're language. Absolutely right, and I appreciate that. Yes. So then, let's talk now about the uh, what's going on. The media's been a little bit quiet, but there's a lot happening in the Orange County Sheriff Hudgens' office. She's been able. She's had her own unique interpretation of the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals ruling concerning San Diego County. So uh, that in last March. Now, so let's start with that. Uh, she has decided that uh, she's going to eliminate, um, well, that's a specific thing, eliminating the in-person gun inspection component of the concealed weapon application. She's streamlining the permitting process. So what is... She's also ignoring and, and eliminating something called good cause, which is the key to our California uh, law about the May issue of concealed weapon permits. Good cause is defined as a valid reason and justification to carry a concealed, loaded gun in public. Um, I'm extremely disappointed, and we have challenged our Orange County Sheriff on this, and the explanations we have gotten uh, kind of shift like the sands through a windstorm. First of all, Claudia, you need to recognize that it was only the sheriff of the county of San Diego that was sued right. about being able to carry a gun outside of the home, which is beyond what our Supreme Court has ruled. That sheriff has not changed his policies one iota as far as evaluating and issuing the permits, even though he is the defendant in that particular case. The next thing we have to understand is it was a three-court three-judge panel, not the entire Ninth Circuit, and only two of those three judges voted this way, and they ignored the Second, Third, and Fourth 
Circuit decisions that all said that our May issue laws are valid. And you have to understand that in issuing concealed weapon permits, there's two different standards. One is a shall issue, which there's no discretion, and 34 states have that law. And California is a May issue, which gives that discretion. And one of those elements is good cause, which our sheriff has decided now to ignore. Um, The difficulty also is that she went to the county supervisors and asked for a million and a half dollars to streamline and and hire 15 uh, retired law enforcement folks to help her with the interviews. And when they said they were unable to do that, she took it out of her whole her own budget. So my next question to our sheriff is, what other police services are suffering because you've taken a million and a half dollars away from those services to put more guns on our street with, quite frankly, less qualified people? And in doing that, Claudia, she's actually putting her own deputies at greater risk because they now have to assume that a person is carrying, has a valid permit, and, and that's putting them at a tremendous disadvantage. So I'm just tremendously difficult. And if we need any particular examples of what irrational CCW permittees will do, I hope our listeners will remember the names Trayvon Martin and Jordan Davis, especially Jordan Davis, Claudia, who there were four teenagers in a car at a gas station, and apparently a permittee decided that they were playing the music in their car too loudly. Michael Dunn. And 10 shots. He fired 10 shots into that car, killing Jordan Davis. And for what reason? Because the CCW man thought that their music was too loud for his comfort level. It just boggles my mind that any law enforcement officer would want to put more guns on the street and jeopardize more of us. Well, and to pile on one more anecdote, too, was the the uh, Tampa area uh, movie theater uh, retiree uh, that was carrying one and shot a man that he thought shouldn't be uh, texting before the actual feature film yeah, began. So, I mean, so to eliminate, and, and in what you have to understand also for, our, for your listeners, I know you understand it, Claudia, but over the last 20 years, California's had the strongest gun laws in the nation, and our gun mortality rate has decreased 52%. Now, the reason that's significant is that as 24%, and let me repeat that, 24% greater than the national average. So the laws that we have established and continue to establish here in California work. And now we have this wild card sheriff who's going out of her way without any legal cause to change that particular status. And what's important also, Claudia, is that there is a two-week period from when that panel made their decision for appeals to be filed. And Kamala Harris, who is the chief law enforcement officer in our state, came forward and filed an appeal. And the Brady uh, Center filed an appeal. For the state. So a stay was issued. And in anybody recognizes what a stay means, Claudia. It means it's in limbo. And when it's in limbo and unenforceable, you go back to what the law was before. And what our sheriff told us was she was only following the law, which was not true. And then her next statement to us, well, it's precedent, which is not true. And the bottom line is that um, her, her behavior in this has been extremely disappointing and, quite frankly, put our citizens here in Orange County at greater risk. So uh, people ask, how would I think that? Well, I'm at the Honda Center 
and the beer has been flowing, and it's a exciting hockey game, and there's a real controversial call near the end of the game, and I look around the Honda Center, and I say to myself, if everybody or the mature or there's people in here caring, am I safer? Does that make me feel safer? Uh, it's just ludicrous to think that putting more guns on the street, hidden and concealed, without proper justification, is a proper police practice. Well, I I guess I want to change or, or add to that uh, the flavor of the permissiveness of the concealed weapon issuing policy in Orange County. It just means there is a pervasive ownership possibility. It does, we don't have a trigger of we're in the Honda Center, we're in a, a large crowd. It could be any street corner, any a a retail, it could be anywhere. And she's been issuing a, a really a significant number of these permits, and it's she can't keep and up with I it. what I don't understand is why she's rushing to it. Well, um, right. And we she's all know that at some point there is going to be a hearing, what we call in bonk, of the entire justices of the Ninth Circuit, and all you have to do is look at their decisions in bonk in the past, and there's no question in any legal expert's mind that I talk with that they will set aside these two judges. These two judges were so into themselves that even though the Second, Third, and Fourth Circuits decided that May issue was lawful, they wrote in that judgment that these circuit decisions were unpersuasive to them. Well, unpersuasive. Charlie, what happens, though, with the permits if the... Um... That's a great question. She's spending a million and a half dollars to get them out on the street. Uh, my, uh, I don't know how she's going to tackle that or what she's going to do when uh, the Ninth Circuit does, in fact, say that if... May issue is, in fact, the law of the state of California. So that's an open legal um, question? Pardon? That's an open legal question, then? What and, happens well, to I those guns? I don't know how she's going to react. So that's, I, I don't think her behavior at this point has been terribly rational. I would hate to speculate on what she may do in the future. Oh, my word. <laughs> this is really, that's pretty dire. And it's it's happening daily with uh, more and more issued. Well, um, I think we're drawing way down on our time. But I think the urgency, you made the, the case very well, Charlie, for people to well, I, I, we don't have any uh, electoral leverage here. She's, I think, no, she unopposed. No, she ran unopposed. The, uh, the chair of the supervisor said, well, it's about time she got back into line, and lo and behold, she turned up in June unopposed, and we have four more years. So, however, what we can do, which is so important today, Claudia, is call Governor Brown, and again, that's one nine one six nine four five nine six nine one. Uh, your faculty and students at UCI need to rally. They need to call Governor Brown. We don't want an Isla Vista to visit UCI. Well, thank you very much. Our guest today was Charlie Black, Orange County Chapter Chair for the Brady Campaign for the Prevention of Gun Violence. Thank you, Charlie, for your time today, and best and love to both you and your, your co-partner. Thank you very much. Thank you for the opportunity, Claudia. Okay. You are our sword. Oh, well, uh, you are you are the sword and the briefcase. We'll leave it at that. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you. All right. Well, we I'll be back with a, I'll get some announcements going here as well as uh, bring on George Rosales show. Shana Tova to all of our Jewish pals out there. Uh, Yoko Ono took out a full-page ad in the New York Times on Sunday with a message for such times. Her, her message? Surrender to peace. Might as well work that theme for the reflective High Holy Days. 
Well, that's all the time we have on Ask a Leader. Next week should be pretty interesting. Over the whole hour, we'll ponder the orthodoxies of Islam, evangelism, and Judaism with Haina Dadaboy, Sarah Jones, and one more guest we're working on getting. They'll talk about the departure from uh, or adjustment from the orthodoxies of those religions in which they were raised. Talk with you next week. Thank you for listening, everyone. <music>